Hello and welcome to the Energy Trilemma, a podcast brought to you by BP. I'm Linda Yu, and throughout this series, I'll be speaking to some of the leading figures on the front line of the trilemma, industry experts and global CEOs who are looking to meet the challenge of energy that's reliable, affordable, and low carbon. Today, we'll be talking about the role of private finance and how it is a critical enabler of the energy transition. It's also key to accelerating progress towards a global net zero economy. I'm delighted to be joined by Bill Winters, the CEO of Standard Chartered. Welcome, Bill. It's a, it's, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. And by Dr. Pratima Raghurajan, the CEO of OGCI Climate Investments. A warm welcome to you as well. Thank you, Linda. Lovely to be here. So firstly, I'd like to ask you, Bill, Standard Chartered has itself committed to reach net zero carbon emissions from its finance activities by 2050, including interim 2030 targets for the most carbon intensive sectors. Are the current challenges in terms of the energy system and the focus on energy security and affordability, are these factors impacting those targets? Do you think we will see progress towards net zero slow as a result? Then it's it's a great question. I think there's and then there's no simple answer because there's a lot there's a lot going on. Uh, on the one hand, obviously we've 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 had highlighted very clearly for us uh, the importance of energy security and diversification of energy sources, uh, and that's compounded by the fact that that fossil fuel prices have skyrocketed everything from from coal to oil and gas, uh, all of which provide really big incentives for people to rethink their energy policy and to find alternatives to fossil fuels. Which of course is a very good thing for uh, for catalyzing movement towards a, a net zero transition. Uh, on the other hand, uh, these net zero transitions are very expensive, and uh, while the global economy feels pretty strong right now, uh, we can all feel the effects of, of rising costs of of, of everything. Uh, the reality and the expectations for further increases in interest rates, <clears throat> and you know, lots of talk about recession. Uh, is there going to be one? And if there is, how severe is it going to be? Uh, so there's a gloominess uh, that is clearly a big disincentive for uh, for people who are thinking about investing in in anything, but in particular a net zero transition. There's there's a, a uh, some some pause for thought at this point, and uh, of course government balance sheets uh, and uh, and uh, fiscal positions are being stressed uh, by virtue both of the economy, but also a, a rediversion of resources to to. Uh, you know, horrific wars and things of that nature. So, and we're still coming out the back end. Uh, let's say it, hopefully, of the of the COVID pandemic. So, I'd say on balance, uh, I'm I remain as hopeful as I was before the world changed earlier this year. Uh, but there are a lot of things moving on, uh, moving around. And I, I think if we find ourselves in a position where where the economy takes a, a real hit, uh, and uh, corporate balance sheets and government balance sheets are particularly heavily heavily stressed, uh, then I'm afraid we'll we'll slip backwards. Uh, uh, in in a, in a less severe scenario, I would hope that the catalyzing influence of of a focus on energy security and then the, just the, the simple economics of, of costs are higher for fossil fuels. Let's find a a, a, a better way, cheaper way uh, to power ourselves. Then net net, I hope it'll be a positive. So, Pratima, the companies that you're investing in will no doubt be facing similar challenges to what Bill has just outlined. What do you think the impact will be of the current situation on progress towards net zero goals? Could progress slow or might decarbonization be a win-win-win for the climate, energy security and affordability challenges of today? But the trilemma is actually a global issue and has been ongoing for a while. Take India, for example. 
this year in April, uh, some parts of India saw 45 degrees C temperatures. This resulted in a spike in the energy use for air conditioning, and soon India had no coal. Uh, those regions ran out of energy. Between the heat and the energy prices, food was scarce and people couldn't afford the basics. So this was the trilemma as it played out in real time where climate issues resulted in an energy security challenge, which exacerbated energy equity issues. Of course, uh, the government was forced to act and therefore they procured more coal and this cycle is going to continue and get worse. And actually 5% increase in the efficiency of that power grid would save $60 billion, right? And that's what they are looking for. That $60 billion is what Prime Minister Modi has announced that he wants to put into gas infrastructure for India. So you could save that just by making the current system more efficient without having to put in a whole new set of infrastructure. So if we look at what we have today and say, where can we stop waste? Where can we save resources? And how do we then redeploy these resources to a more long-term sustainable outcome? But what we're not looking at is other ways of solving the problem. And there are win-win ways to solve the problem, which means we save on energy, we save on cost. And we save the planet. Bill, let me just bring you in on that. Um, in terms of what we've seen in India, that just strengthens the case, doesn't it? That there is an urgency to accelerate uh, the net zero transition. I, I think there's a, there's a tremendous urgency. And we have a very big operation in India. We felt that very acutely. And of course, it, it came uh, a year after and an, uh, similarly horrific uh, a set of events around the, the COVID pandemic. And, but Pratima made the, made the comment earlier that... Uh, when governments uh, adopt a war footing or when societies adopt a war footing, we can actually get a lot done. And it, it causes me to reflect on on what we were able to do in terms of fighting this pandemic as, as, a, as a human race and, uh, and the way that we've responded to the invasion of Ukraine, uh, where there's been a tremendous mobilization of resources with, with enormous financial commitments. Uh, it, it's similar in scale to the financial commitments that that uh, that, that led to the, the successful vaccine program and, and then rollout of those vaccines. We have not adopted a similar war footing uh, in, on the subject of climate change. And I think we all scratch our heads and say, how could that be? This is some, it's actually a more existential threat than either of those two other very horrific crises. But uh, but the climate change crisis is is uh, is fundamentally existential for our planet. Uh, but we've not had the same response. And why is that? And, and I guess the only real explanation is because it's not today's problem. It's tomorrow's problem. But then you get a reminder, as, as, as uh, Prashmi just took us through, around you know, the, the impact uh, in, in, in a country like India. Uh, and this is we know this is just the early stages of, of the, the climate consequences of, of our you know, generations of, of, uh, of bad behavior and, and inactivity. Uh, so it's not too late to get this right. But it's uh, it's going to be too late pretty soon if we don't act now. And uh, and India was uh, was another reminder of that. You know, in our current systems today, for every molecule of energy that we need, we actually have to build three molecules of energy because two molecules are wasted. And this is because our systems that we have already developed, whether it's for transport or buildings or food or industrial goods, they're all only one third efficient. So imagine if we could save those two molecules. We would save money, we would save energy, and we would save emissions. Pratima, can I just ask you, just following up on this thought, um, is it possible that the scale and pace of decarbonization could actually be increased? So OGCI climate investments, um, you aim to accelerate the industry response to climate change. So how do you think that could be achieved? 
the scale and pace have to be increased. We have to cut cut down, I think, to get to one and a half C, we have to deliver a reduction by half in eight years of our emissions. So I'll just say up front, based on the work we've been doing for the past five years, the problem or the challenge is not technology or innovation. We have that. The problem is simply that we're not adopting the changes and installing them at scale globally fast enough. Let me use one example. And it's an area where we can make a difference very quickly, and that's in methane emissions. Methane accounts for about 20% of greenhouse gas emissions. It comes from oil and gas, agriculture, coal, and landfill. And it's also extremely potent greenhouse gas. Now, imagine if we could cut this by half. And as I said, technology exists. We know how to do this. You cut it by half. That half of savings could provide the gas needs of the United Kingdom, Italy, Germany, and France without creating any new energy. It would allow us to save $80 billion per annum, and it would also save 5 gigatons, so 5 billion tons of greenhouse gas emissions per year. Fantastic. I want to put the same question to you, Bill, which is, what do you see as the main way to accelerate progress towards net zero? I'd love to pick up on, on, the, on the two points that, that Pradami made, which I, which I just think are fascinating, the, the, the two-thirds of, of uh, that we, we have the technology today to reduce our emissions by two-thirds if we can get that technology fully deployed and, and embraced. And, uh, and that, that, that's a... That that clearly is key to the the long term solution to this problem to become structurally more efficient, uh, and uh, then then by extension that the, the next step of the technology evolution uh, will be or revolution uh, will be to, to to develop those technologies that actually remove carbon from the atmosphere and, and permanently uh, sequester that, uh, so that we can get back to uh, to levels that, that where where we can comfortably continue to grow, uh, and I think that's. What needs to happen to to accelerate that? The, the long and the short of it is we need to find the money, uh, because all those things require really substantial investment up front. And at a standard charter bank, uh, it's a, it's a particularly pressing issue. Our, our our bank operates across Asia, the Middle East, and Africa, uh, with a very heavy emphasis on emerging markets. And we've done a, a bunch of research that that uh, points out that less than ten percent of the financing that's required to affect a uh, low carbon transition in sub-Saharan Africa is available through any conventional source. A similar statistic in Europe would be over 70%. Uh, it's, it doesn't mean that the money's there waiting to be taken, uh, but the, you can have a pretty good idea where it's gonna come from. And the money exists, right? There's trillions of dollars of, of ESG and other funds that, that have been earmarked for, uh, for climate change related investments, but it's not finding its way into the hands of the people that can make a difference. Uh, and there's there's some some pretty substantial uh, risk uh, intermediation that that needs to be taken on, and some uh, almost certainly some uh, segmentation of the risk uh, in in these climate related projects that will allow people who are better suited to take some risks to step up and take it. So, for example, uh, the, the whole area of public private partnerships, where we can use the multilateral development banks or export credit agencies, you know, other either multilateral or or, uh, or single state. Uh, financing arms to uh, to catalyze multiples of the amount of, of money that they would put at risk through the private sector, you know, through these ESG funds, through banks, et cetera. Uh, and if we can harness that that the that public private partnership, if we can create the the, the confidence uh, that these financing transactions are both executable and effective, uh, and if we can continue to apply the the the, the pressure. To the, to the various stakeholders, most specifically businesses and governments who are ultimately responsible for most of the world's uh, emissions, uh, keep the pressure up to, to make these investments, 
uh, and get the money into the right hands, uh, I think we can we can crack this nut. But that's a, that's a lot of ifs that, that have not yet been completely bottomed out. Well, certainly private finance, as you both have said, is a critical enabler of a net zero economy. And we heard a lot of commitments from private finance at the Glasgow meeting of um, COP26 last November. Bill, you have over 30 years of experience in the financial sector. It'd be great to hear your thoughts on how you bring the rest of the financial sector, so those who didn't make commitments at COP26, on the journey with you. That's a pressing question, and it's, it's been fascinating to watch how quickly uh, the the market has 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 evolved from, uh, I'd say, a little bit more than nice words, but not much more, to uh, one of a very serious focus, and and clearly now transitioning to very serious action. What compelled us at Standard Chartered? Uh, I think part of it was the, the realization that that if we don't play our part in getting this right, uh, we won't have much of a business at the end of the day because our markets will just suffer uh, tremendously. And our markets aren't just our markets. They're not just profit pools. That's also where our colleagues work. Uh, it's where our clients live. That's where our families are from. And uh, you know, so it's, 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 it became quite personal, uh, I think, for, for, I'd say, virtually all of my uh, 100,000 or so colleagues. Uh, so uh, the, the first and, and probably most critical stakeholder, I think, for any of our companies are gonna be our own employees. We're just not gonna be able to, to attract and retain good talent. Uh, if we're not seen to be a responsible company. Uh, if that's not enough, uh, I think owners are increasingly putting pressure. So in our case, it's public shareholders. Uh, the, uh, and I think any public company uh, is beginning to feel that, and most will feel it quite acutely in, uh, in the coming years. And interestingly, uh, this is probably slightly more relevant for, for supply chains than it is for financing chains, but uh, it's going to be very hard for, for companies to sell their goods and services uh, to other international companies if they don't meet the sustainability requirements of those buyers. This, the supply chains and the buyers uh, in the world uh, will have as much enforcement ability on the, the companies on the ground to change their practices, to, to find a way to invest this money and improve their, their environmental performance. Uh, so it's a bit of a pincer movement. You know, if the money is leaning in on these companies and if, the, if, the, if their buyers are leaning in, their customers are leaning in on these companies, uh, it's going to happen. And, and banks will not be able to stay on the sideline. Uh, capital markets investors will not be able to stay on the sideline. Uh, and that's, that's only if we haven't already gotten there be, because we've concluded, one, it's the right thing to do. Uh, two, it's a good risk mitigation strategy. Or three, because we won't have any people who you want to work with who want to work with you if you don't get this right. Yeah, no, absolutely. So Pratima, a really similar question to you. What do you think the role the finance industry can play to help, I think, solve the energy trilemma, you know, getting the world energy that's clean, that's secure, and importantly, affordable? We always ask how many more countries or pledges we can get after COP26. I think we've got to hold accountable the people who have made pledges in COP26, and we need to see much more action. You know, 100 countries came together to sign the Global Methane Pledge to cut emissions by 30%. How many of them have enacted these into actionable policies, right? It's time, as Bill said, to get to work rather than to get to the talking part. You know, I'd say financial institutions, you're absolutely right, you know, what Bill said. Everyone needs to have the capital to make changes. 
but financial institutions can reward low methane products and producers. They can reward the companies that are the most resource efficient and can reduce their own energy use. So just to clarify, Pratima, so methane, are we thinking cows? Agriculture is about 30% of methane. (laughs) But let's start with oil and gas and coal and landfills. You know, have you ever been to a landfill? It's eye-opening. And the stuff that comes out is eye-watering. So it is really a potent greenhouse gas, much worse than carbon dioxide. And yet we have all the technologies and it's actually quite inexpensive. Bill, you brought up expense. There are some parts of the US where one of our companies has helped mitigate it. It's $2 a ton. It's absolutely inexpensive and it's inexcusable for us not to go after the low-hanging fruit. It's the same in energy efficiency in, in anything, you know. I mean, idling your car. Don't idle your car. It's a behavioral choice. I remember this estimate from COP26 that if the COP26 commitments on methane were um, honored, it would actually reduce by 0.3 degrees. So the 1.5 plus degree target, a big part of it could actually be achieved by technology which is already there if the commitments can be delivered upon. Absolutely. We have technologies today within our portfolio that detect and measure methane emissions that actually prevent it or they reuse the leaked methane. So these are the companies you're investing in. This is the role of finance and making sure that those companies are the ones that are rewarded. Absolutely. And we don't see many others doing what we're doing. But I will also tell you that the sectors can do more. We talked about which sectors are responsible for methane emissions. The OGCI companies, the consortium um, that funds us, have taken the pledge further. They've gone to zero methane pledge and they've invited the rest of the sector to join them. So we could actually see both sectorial and financial collaboration to add to the policy collaboration. But what we really need to see is is some action and results. Actions, results, responsibility. We've talked about the role of the financial sector, but where does the balance of responsibility lie to take action? Should it be for governments to drive action on climate change or for the private sector to take a lead? So, Bill, perhaps if I can come to you first on this, whose responsibility is it to drive change? And what support, if any, does the financial sector need from governments to accelerate progress towards net zero? Well, I I think there's two interesting questions in there. One is who should take responsibility? And then second is who will take responsibility? And you know, we could solve this problem in a relatively straightforward, not cheap, but straightforward way if governments took individual and collective action. Look at the the reduction in in European emissions on the back of the the, the EU's emission trading system, which is a system of quotas uh, with with steadily reducing uh, allowable amounts, and then a secondary market that allows those those, uh, achievements beyond the quota to be traded, uh, which then allows surplus money to uh, to go into uh, other projects that that are are carbon reducing right so that's if we had a global uh, cap and trade system uh, with border adjustment tariffs to try to capture the the cheaters uh, with a secondary market that would allow the the market in carbon credits that would allow uh, money on the margin to find its way into the into the pockets that that the government system didn't otherwise capture. Uh, I think you could you could uh, crack this nut very quickly. Uh, now it doesn't make it any cheaper uh, to do it that way, but and it's politically very unpopular, uh, which is why it's not happening. And it's in particular not happening in in the to any meaningful way in the two largest uh, emitters in the world. Uh, one of which is my homeland, and the other which is is the biggest market in which we operate, uh, as Senator Trotter. So 
that uh, that's who should take responsibility. But let's just not rely on governments. Uh, the uh, that leads the private sector. And that leaves uh, individuals and consumers. The private sector, I think, has the necessary tools uh, to act today. Uh, it's not perfect. Uh, for the most part, we know where we're starting in the private sector. We know what we're emitting today. There's money available. As we discussed before, it's not always finding its way into the right hands or into the optimal hands. Uh, but all these things are a little bit loose right now. So I think we need to, to, to firm up the, uh, the data quality at the outset. Uh, we need to... Uh, get these various pathways to be more granular. I mean, what, what you can do with an aluminium producer in Nigeria is different than what you could do with an aluminium producer in Finland. Uh, so that that requires some some granularity that, that's lacking today. Uh, there are tremendous inconsistencies in terms of disclosure. Uh, so I, I think as some of the the, the efforts I see by the, the SEC in the U.S. or uh, or, or other um, reporting organizations uh, trying to standardize disclosures. And, uh, and then validate that the, that the disclosures are accurate. I think that that's a critical component to this, this private sector ecosystem. Really interesting. And of course, I know, Bill, that you're the chair under the IIF, this uh, body, trade body for the financial sector, looking at voluntary carbon markets. And when you mentioned there the carbon adjustment mechanism, I like how you described this to uh, catch the cheaters. I mean, that's a regulation. That is a tariff on the border so that the European Union has more strict standards um, then it gets applied to countries and to incentivize them to also have stricter environmental standards. And that does point to a role, um, as Bill was saying, that governments and regulators can actually accelerate this change. But it'd be good to get your view on this as well, Pratima. You know, what is the role that legislators, regulators, governments can play in accelerating this um, transition to a net zero economy? You know, I agree with Bill. A lot can be achieved before we need the government. But we do need the government. And the private sector can take a leadership position because they've studied this. They know what needs to get done. But it's really a matter of even in the private sector, we need to change how we operate and we need to agree on taking that leadership. So one of those, for example, would just be in the allocation of private capital. Bill talked about where the capital is, right? Recently, everyone is talking about climate Everyone wants to participate in this. And I think over $150 billion across venture capital, private equity and infrastructure was raised between 2017 and March of this year, 2022. But then you look at where this capital is going to be allocated. And if you look historically over the last eight or so years, eight to 10 years, it's been completely imbalanced. Over 60% of the capital has gone to mobility technologies, a sector that accounts for less than 16% of the emissions. If you actually look at the sliver that goes to the manufacturing sector, you know, where emissions are, you know, industry, heavy transport, built environment, construction, that's not where the private capital is going. And that's why where Bill says, look, there isn't enough capital, it's not hitting the sectors where the need is, where we have to deliver. So that's why we, as actually an investment fund, we focus in on the underserved sectors. It also gives us an opportunity, actually, where we don't fight the crowds. And we can deliver decarbonization and financial returns. So I think that's important is just the behavior. And even in operating companies, what we're seeing, Bill brought up um, supply chains. We're not seeing the focus on decarbonization across the entire operations of a company. It needs to look like safety. Everyone from supply chains, procurement, all the way to sales needs to have these targets embedded in the operations. If not... All you have is the sustainability division talking and headquarters talking, but it's not being done at 
you know, with every single person in the company. And that's how, as Bill said, we can retain people and bring in the best talent when everyone's empowered. What a fascinating discussion we've had today. Thank you to my guests, Bill Winters, CEO of Standard Chartered, and Dr. Pratima Rangarajan, CEO of OGCI Climate Investments. A big takeaway from our conversation has got to be the huge role that private finance must play in solving the energy trilemma. Vast sums of money are needed to help scale up lower carbon technologies and the importance of ensuring that capital flows to where it can make the biggest difference are important takeaways from today's conversation, which was a great discussion. Thank you all for listening. I'm Linda Yu, the host of this podcast brought to you by BP. Be sure to follow us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast so you don't miss a single episode.